Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today, and as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Good morning. Other members of our group this week include Professor Dr. Sarah Jane Ward. Hey, everybody. And our special guest today is Tim Schlipp, partnered at a thematic VC fund, Palo Santo, which is focused on psychedelic investing. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. We have a great show for you, listener, today. Uh, for our popular science and news stories, we're going to talk about the default mode network, about Jimson Weed and underground psychedelics labs. For our rapid science conversation, it's all about mescaline and ayahuasca peer-reviewed research articles. And we'll end this episode with a game. Our uh, panelists today will try to figure out which tabloid is real from the ones that I have made up. So a little bit of three truths and a lie, but centered around drug news tabloid. So we will be right back with a popular literature and news item after the short break. All right, welcome back. So our first story is entitled, What is the Default Mode Network from the Psychedelic Science Review site, psychedelicreview.com. Now, this is written by Master of Science Sabrina Eisenberg, and the author discusses a theory which has changed a bit of the paradigm around the brain and brain health, while also being you know, controversial and criticized heavily. Basically, this article talks about the DMN, or Default Mode Network, is when you're at rest. So when we think of uh, you know, laying down and our intention drifts away from the outside world, we're in sort of a resting state. So when you're doing goal-oriented tasks, certain areas of the brain are very active, which are then absent during the sort of resting states. Um, and so the, the resting state is like thought to be where we have our self-referential thought processes, where we ruminate, uh, sort of more internal awareness. It is thought to be sort of the subjective experience of our various psychological states. Um, and, and basically, one of the reasons this is important is that psychedelics seem to alter the DMM mode, the default mode network, which is thought to be where the ego may vanish um, and our sort of boundaries uh, we experience between self and world kind of melt away, to paraphrase Michael Pollan, who's quoted in this article. So, you know, this is kind of maybe a difficult concept for some folks, but I don't think it's that um, wild to think like, you know, you have this sort of resting state that's still metabolically active and doing other things. But I'm still trying to figure out how could we approach studying this? Um, you know, the article talks about a lot of different brain regions, like the, the claustrum and, and these other areas that are connected to all these other parts of the brain. But just kind of in a simple sense, you know, I want to go to, to you, Sarah, and just kind of get your take on, you know, how can we simply kind of study something like this? Um, do, do animals have, you know, other animals other than humans have a resting state in their brain where they sit and ponder reality and, and internalize things? You know, I'm trying to think about psychedelics, drug development, and making these products as safe as possible and understanding their risks and how they work. What, does this stuff make sense to you? What are your, share some of your thoughts. Yeah, I, I loved this article. I'm looking forward to reading it 
10 or 20 more times so I can wrap my head around. It's, you know, full of a lot of really complex um, concepts. Um, And so for me as really this for me was interesting from a substance abuse research point of view. And, you know, there are many different levels that we can study sort of complex behaviors like reward behavior and addiction. And, you know, we try to do this in animal models. That's what my career is based on. And obviously um, we do this on the human level as well. And I think, you know, when we drill down to sort of the basics of reward-driven behavior or addictive behavior, we think about the parts of the brain that drive reward. um, And then we think about the sort of higher order parts of the brain that try to regulate reward-directed behavior. So really, you know, simplistically, like when I talk to, um, you know, sort of your average Joe, or when I go into schools and talk about addiction, I talk about these very basic pleasure centers in the brain that light up when we do something pleasurable. And some of these behaviors turn out to be good. And so the higher order parts of our brain, like our medial prefrontal cortex, learns that that was a good thing and sort of feeds back and says, okay, let's do that again. Then we have things like drug taking behavior where it's sort of a mixed bag, right? And if you think about the world of addiction, you use substances that feel rewarding and then you may or may not get feedback um, to engage in that behavior again or not. So in addiction, we think of this developing imbalance between reward-driven behavior and a top-down feedback, like, whoa, put, put the brakes on that kind of behavior. And we think of addiction as the medial prefrontal cortex message goes away. And now I just have this more primitive goal-directed behavior being unleashed. So I think it's fascinating to think that in the resting state, those higher order brain regions are active right? The, it was like, you know, future planning, reflection on things, and that something like the psychedelic use shuts that part down. On the other hand, as we'll talk about in many of the later articles, people are looking at psychedelic use for the treatment of addictive behavior. So I think this is a really fascinating perspective of what are the positives to shutting down those brain regions that we think are like the smart parts of our brain, right? We think about the prefrontal cortex as, okay, I've learned a bunch of stuff. I have the ability to make good judgment, things like that. But those parts of our brain also really can mess us up (laughs) and underlie a lot of, um, you know, development of different stress disorders or stinking thinking kinds of behaviors. So I, I think just, you know, and I, I know I've taken a lot of time already talking about this, but I love how it sets up thinking about who do we want to be talking to us, these primitive parts of our brain or these higher order parts of our brain? And and is, is the root of the therapeutic effects of psychedelics on addiction resetting the relationship and who's talking 
while we're at rest? Are we getting too much conversation from cert certain parts of the brain and not enough conversation maybe from some of these primitive parts of the brain that we often in the addiction world blame uh, for addiction? So sorry, that was a lot. All in yeah. there. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, you know, it's very interesting to think that, um, you know, our brain activities can change. And that's one of the things this, this article talks about is that in many sort of disease conditions, pathological conditions, the sort of DMN, the default mode activity or resting activity is increased. And so just very simplistically decreasing that might have, have a benefit. And I think some people, you know, without much brain function seem to be very active in the world. Um, so I wonder, you know, what those societal implications are. Um, so, so Nigam, do you want to share some thoughts uh, about this article? Did you, did you read it? Did it resonate with you? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on the untethered mind and the possibilities here? Yeah, I thought something that was really cool is how they're actually measuring this and how they're identifying it with different parts of the brain and, and the methods that they're using based on uh, oxygen extraction factor. Um, so I learned a little bit about the methodology behind this. And then just, um, I think it's really interesting, the exploration of this conscious versus the subconscious, the, um, and you know, we hear these things about ego dissolution a little bit later, we're going to talk about, uh, ayahuasca and DMT and how it works. So, um, I, I think this is a really great starting point for some of the stuff we're about to talk about. Great. And so, Tim, I'd love to get your thoughts as, as you know, someone who's experienced in, in the venture capital side. If I came to you and said, I have this product, it just, you know, it gets rid of your ego. It changes like resting brain activity. Um, I think, you know, this has a lot of potential. Uh, you know, kind of what questions would you ask someone who was trying to say commercialize a therapeutic or even just a, a functional product that was, its mechanism was related to the default mode network? Yeah, well, that, that's been, you know, a big question is how do you isolate variables with psychedelics? And is it, is it purely, you know, if you had something that changed brainwave states and it could shut down the default mode network and, and you didn't even have to take a psychedelic, could you get the same therapeutic outcomes? So, I mean, that would, be, that would be my big question. I mean, I, based on my understanding, I think there's a lot more pharmacologically going on with, with ingesting a psychedelic. So I'd be a, a bit skeptical. I mean, we've even seen some opportunities where, you know, it'll be like a headset and, and you go through a trip experience. They try to induce a trip without any, any active, you know, psychedelic compounds. So, um, you know, there, there'd certainly be a, a bit of skepticism is, is this the only thing? And I've, I've always, I, and maybe this is just a bias towards pill popping in, in America and everything, you know, <laughs> wearables and things like that, where it's like, Oh, we can, you know, change brainwave states. You know, I, I, I always have questions. I, I feel like there's, there's always more promise. And then, doesn't always um, live up to the hype, but one, one thing this article did make me think of too, that's been on my mind as an investor is there's such a bias. I feel like, you know, in, in psychedelic research, research towards these macro dose experiences, cause that really goes in tandem with changes, you know, very active changes to the default mode network. I feel like in, in, you know, it, it's kind of like if you throw a ton of Advil at a problem, you know, if you have pain, it's like, no crap, you're going to, you know, reduce the pain, but I feel like there's, there's a lot more work to be done, you know, below those macrodose thresholds and, you know, all the way down to my, you know, truly subperceptual microdosing that, I mean, there's just, I see a lot of white space there. Can you get at least maybe not the full therapeutic outcomes, but close enough where, you know, 
you mitigate the psychoactivity? I mean, that's a big question around commercialization is, yeah, you can do these big macrodose experiences. It's psychoactive. You need a lot of clinicians present, but are there ways to get a lot of the therapeutic benefits from psychedelics, be it, you know, anti-inflammatory outcomes or, or, you know, more mild neuroplasticity in tandem with psychotherapy over a prolonged period of time? You know, there's just, I feel like there's a lot more work to be done there. So that, that, this article certainly made me think of that. And that's one company um, that I feel like is doing good work on that is Diamond Therapeutics, um, doing quite a bit of work around microdosing and really trying to look at self-perceptual dosing. Can you get some good therapeutic outcomes from that? So um, just kind of a more, you know, less of a conclusion and more food for thought um, coming out of this. And, and one question I'll pose to you guys, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop talking here, but um, I'm no nurse neuroscientist. So when they were talking about different brain regions, you know, a lot of that was a bit over my head. So I always had the impression that on a psychedelic experience, usually the default mode network kind of, you know, shuts off more actively. Generally, I, I think it's probably more nuanced of Sarah, you were hitting on certain brain regions are more active. Others are less active. But one thing I read that confused me a bit. They, so they mentioned increased activity has been shown in the DMN of patients with schizophrenia, depression, and social phobia, but reduced in autism, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, especially for schizophrenia, so it's, you know, they've shown, yeah, you know, when someone's on a psychedelic experience and usually the activity is decreased, you can kind of get mild psychotic symptoms, which just seem like an inconsistency, but, you know, which could be an answer to the mechanism of action of schizophrenia versus, you know, psychosis induced by psychedelic is very different. And maybe there is less to be worried about of, of really, you know, lapsing into schizophrenia from a psychedelic. You guys may have more comment there, but there's one thing that just caught my eye. If I was like, hmm, it, just, it felt almost inconsistent in a way. It's a, it's a great point, Tim. And, and just sort of my basic understanding would be, we have to think about kind of the context of who's receiving the psychedelic, because if you have, yeah. let's just call it a quote unquote healthy brain that's at whatever, you know, national averages for default load network activity and you give that brain a psychedelic that interaction may be different than someone who already has a very stimulated default load network it's already you know you know like in the schizophrenia population where it's very high like you're starting yeah. at this level and then this levels in this population is higher the effect the psychedelic has might be more drastic um, in that population um, but yeah. you know sarah nigam did you want to um, to, to talk about this, maybe, you know, Sarah, I wanted to ask you again, just before we go to the next topic, um, you know, this reminds me of some of the first studies in cannabinoids I was exposed to. And they would give, you know, mice were given just whopping doses of THC or other drugs, and we compared them on a ring, and they'd like go around this ring, and we'd measure their explore, exploratory behavior. And I just, ne I'll never forget, I'm sitting there with my, my mentor, and this mouse just sort of stops on the ring and just stares off into space for just a little while. And then it keeps like going around the ring. And I was like, maybe that's the default mode network. I could never really explain what was happening there. Um, but, you know, share us a little bit about the basic research stuff. Yeah, you know, so one of the really cool things that's not necessarily new, but continually emerging is that we can certainly do neuroimaging studies in rodents with ever increasing resolution. So, you know, there's a debate, like mice and rats definitely have a front part of 
the cortex. Whether or not we can call that the prefrontal cortex or the medial prefrontal cortex, we can you know, start to zoom in with some pretty awesome resolution on discrete um, parts of the brain and most of the parts of the brain that were listed in this article. And it just gives us another way to ask the rodent what's going on in its head. You know, it's continues to be frustrating to me that I can't ask the rats and mice, <laughs> you know, <laughs> some certain questions, but you know, we're having ever increasing tools to ask what's going on and to correlate with what's going on in the human. So to be able to correlate, you know, these brain regions that are activated during these different states. And it, and it is especially tricky with, with psychedelics when you're talking about things like hallucination. We've always been way behind in the animal research because how do I know if an animal is hallucinating? But as far as we could get into really specific neural patterns um, that we can see in the brains of humans when they are um, under, you know, our dosed with these drugs and compare that to rodents, I think that would be awesome. Um, and, you know, go, going back to what Tim pointed out, I, I agree with you. I was going through those list of indications like, all right, what does schizophrenia and depression have in common that, you know, is different from autism and also that was one of those things I'd like to spend more time, you know, thinking about. Yeah. But one of the, one of the things I think would be important to tease apart is when, when the default, default mode network is decreased, who is increased and vice versa? And that may really tell us what is going on. You know, when I, would, when I hear that the default mode network is decreased with psychedelics, well, who is talking now? Who is getting, you know, I mean, so, so there, yeah, there are so many questions with that. The other quick thing that I want to point out with this article is um, the, it, it brought in the conversation of serotonin and different serotonin receptors and their responsiveness to psychedelics. So one thing that we usually, you know, pigeonhole with psychedelics is what do psychedelics have in common? Well, they interact with the serotonin. All right, well, what does that have to do with hallucinations or the therapeutic improvement? I, I had mentioned on another show, um, you know, what is the therapeutic effect of psychedelics? Is it acting on serotonin receptors or is it experiencing a trip? Uh, is it both? Is it one? Is it the other? And one cool thing that this article talked about is, is the serotonin system sort of the gatekeeper to this balance in the default mode network? And is that how psychedelics can tap into changing who is talking to us when we're at rest. And, you know, again, all these things are things we can study in rodents and in humans. And I thought this article did a great job of spanning something, you know, so in the psychological realm as ego death, all, you know, to default mode network and serotonin and to, and to take all of that together in context, I think is really exciting. Yeah, Sarah, I really like what you say about which part of the brain is talking because it's you know from an evolutionary perspective we do have a bit of a ancient brain a lizard brain if you will right that controls things like our fear our fight or flight response the willingness to follow leaders blindly you know behaviors we can still see to this day and it might be interesting if you're 
altering that. Um, and it makes me think of some of those LSD and psychedelic mind control studies uh, that the government tried to do way back when. Um, so I think, you know, there might be something there in how we process certain stimuli or connect it um, and what regions are being connected to each other or communicating with each other, which normally wouldn't communicate. So who's talking to who up there, I think is a, is, is it the represent, representatives from the hippocampus or is it the, you know, delegation from the cerebellum? You know, I think those are fun questions to start to ask, you know, those different regions might interact. So I would like to move on to our next article. So as we come down from the default mode network being highly active, uh, I want to talk about an article from one of my favorite magazines, Double Blind Mag. They had a really great article entitled, What is Ayahuasca? Written by Bailey Ron and Tyler Koslow. Now, this is a great article. goes into a lot of depth just about the basics of ayahuasca. Now, we don't need to get into the mechanisms of action because we will talk about that, Sarah, the serotonergic system and, and DMT and ayahuasca with the science stuff. But I really just want to kind of clarify for people what is ayahuasca? You know, it is native to South America, um, and, and typically it's traditionally a psychotropic brew, uh, a drink, and taken for religious and healing purposes by indigenous, you know, Amazonian people. And it's typically made from the amalgamation of two main plant-based ingredients. You have the cappy vine and Psychotria viridis or viridis. So one makes an MO, MAOI inhibitor, one makes DMT. You mix them together, you get orally basically active uh, a psychedelic experience. Now, of course, you can vape and inhale and do all sorts of things with DMT to get a, a short effect. But this process actually, you know, of brewing it with different plants to enhance the activity, prevent its breakdown, leads to sort of a more long-term effect. Now, I don't want to spoil too much, but uh, Nigam, I wanted to just kind of ask you, was there something that surprised you? You know, we've been, you know, very heavily researching psychedelics for the last year, you know, reading a lot of literature articles, discussing them. You know, what was something that surprised you about this, this trip into the world of ayahuasca? One thing that was a little bit interesting was somewhere in here, they were talking about ayahuasca doesn't like there's different types cause there's different plants that they uh, utilize and there's types of ayahuasca that don't even contain DMT and that I didn't, I, I didn't have a full understanding. Is that because there's other molecules in that specific brew? Is there some like next level or like niche ayahuasca that, that we're unaware of? So I thought that was pretty cool. The other thing that I thought was interesting and I'm curious to hear other folks in the group's uh, thoughts on is they were really emphasizing the the shaman or the uh, guide and how influential that was. And I almost like, I, I'm not, so I, I personally have never been on one of these like ayahuasca retreats. So I, I haven't had this experience with a shaman specifically, but it was a little bit strange to me that the emphasis was so much on the, at least in this article, they were emphasizing so much the shaman, the guide versus like the person's own mental state. Um, so I don't know, a couple things that stood out. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I'd actually like to ask Tim about this, you know, because in this article, it talks a little bit about the ayahuasca tourism. And, you know, in the nineties, it was really starting to peak 
um, people spending like four grand for this like weekend experience with saunas. And now you can go to these places and there's Wi-Fi. You know, I, I have to imagine that as people are developing psychedelic products, do you think there's a role for, let's just call it a sh- shaman type of person for microdosing, right? Because people are taking these drugs. They might be feeling new things, thinking new things. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, you know, I'd like to get your thoughts on the micro and macro dosing and, and the role of the shaman. And if you know, that's an important part of a, maybe a product or service a company could offer. Yeah, on the microdosing front, I've never, I've never even thought about that. You know, I, I'd always microdosing. I'd always put in the realm of you. You kind of, you kind of do it on your own. You know, maybe if you're seeing a psychotherapist in tandem, and, and they they've got some experience um, that that certainly helps. But it it tends to be so sub perceptual that um, there's there's less to process in in one moment with with the person. Um, but it's an interesting point. You know, I guess my, as an investor, my question is always what keeps me up at night is, is how do you commercialize psychedelics? And, and there's such a bias and, and to your point of kind of, you know, the bias towards the shaman and having someone there, that's what increases the cost of a lot of these and decreases access for a lot of it. And the reality is a lot of people can't spend $4,000 to go to a retreat center Yet there's a lot of people kind of out there squawking that you need a shaman, you need a guide. This is so important. And in, in some ways that, that feels very kind of high-minded, you know, there's a lot of people who can't. So, you know, even though not everyone can go to these massive retreats and with saunas and everything, if, if someone does it, you know, a friend does have ayahuasca and you go, you know, somewhere in your neighborhood or something, should we really be snobbish about that? I don't, I don't think so. Or as these begin, you know, to probably commercialize in, in different ways, you know, as, as we find, different modes of administration and different models for having guides and oversight. Um, I don't think we should, you know, have such a bias towards it. So I, I think, you know, and we've seen this even in psilocybin and people are starting to chisel away at that model and thinking through, are there other creative ways to administer these where you don't need one guide per person? I know with ayahuasca, oftentimes there's, there's group sessions, but I also think there's different preferences from patients as well. I mean, some patients, I'm now analogizing to ketamine and psilocybin, but I think, these are all psychedelics. We can kind of lump them all together. For some patients with ketamine, we've talked to ketamine centers where they don't want a clinician in the room the whole time. They don't want someone watching them at a very intimate moment. Sometimes they want to be alone. And I can attest from personal experiences, there's been moments where I, I do want to be alone. It's nice to kind of have a, a safety button. Something goes wrong, but um, there's new models emerging of kind of control centers where you have you know video cameras watching people. And if there's an adverse event, some, a nurse can come in and help out. But other than that, you know, they, they step away. So um, I know I'm getting a little tangential on the topic here, but I, I think it all, that kind of that through line of having a guide, having a shaman, I think it's nice. I mean, you know, you know again, it's like one of those things, you, if you throw the kitchen sink at an illness, yeah, it's going to get better. But for a lot of people, that's not the reality. And I do think you can still find enough therapeutic outcomes for enough people, um, you know, with without all those, you know, all those processes in place. So um, hopefully that made sense, but you know, it's, I, it's always in the back of my head of how can we, is it a nice to have or a need to have? Right. And I think for a lot of these, it's a nice to have. Um, but for, you know, a lot of people, if you can, you know, reduce the role of a shaman or increase group size or, you know, have oversight, but not as active of a role, I think there's um, a lot of models that will emerge. around. You this. know, I like that there, there are, 
might be, you know, in, in many melting pot cities, you might have access to a friendly neighborhood shaman. Um, but, you know, if you're out in the middle of like Wyoming or something, you're going to have, you know, that might just be something nice to have um, around or yeah. an option to, to have yeah. that guidance. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say too, is, I mean, there's been this question of, can you have more tech enabled solutions for oversight of, I know field trip, it kind of brought this up. I don't know what the progress was on it, but you know, a trip guide for an app, um, some people have thrown out the idea of, do you just have a safety button on an app of you, you trip alone, if something goes really bad. You just have a button you push and so it's like telehealth, someone pops up and helps you. But to your point, Jayhan, I mean, yeah, there's for people who are in remote areas or, and we know that for more rural areas, access to any mental health resources is significantly more limited. You know, are there other creative solutions that can emerge? And I, I do think so. That's why I'm investing in the spaces because I think it's highly investable and you're going to see a lot of new technologies and and methodologies emerge over the next decade, but yeah. All right, thank you. Um, so Sarah, real quick, I, I wanna just ask you, um, so you have some happy thoughts or unhappy thoughts about this article, maybe some ethical concerns? Um, yeah, I, I, the article was very educational for me. As you guys know, I'm more the cannabis person than the psychedelic person, although you guys are giving me a good uh, crash course education. So I, I love the article. Um, obviously I liked the, the pharmacology part, we can talk about that, um, later on. Um, I, I, I love the conversation with how important is the shaman, you know, this is, this goes into the clinic, clinical trials world. Um, and, you know, as a, as a scientist, when we run an experiment and we've done 20 different things, we like to know, you know, were all 20 of those things important? Was it important yeah. that the researcher was a male? Was it important that we tested them in the morning and not the nighttime? And, you know, we like to know as scientists, which, what was extraneous. Um, and this also ties into the importance of the placebo effect. And is the shaman part of, and I don't even really like the word placebo effect, honestly, because it's like, what which effects are pharmacological and which effects are coming from something else and you know to tim's point i think it's really important to understand um you know how necessary is it are there ways that we need to try to build that guided component to it or or not is it going to be just as effective um, and lastly, I, I like your thought about an app. You know, I see probably 20 Noom commercials a day about, you know, and it's like, you know, yeah. there is a psychological component to all of these things where messaging is important. I, I love the concept of a shaman app, <laughs> you know, is, is, yeah. can you... I can, shaman, right? Or I don't know. Right? So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Can you, <laughs> you digitize... Know part of that component. So I think all those things are really important. I, and I do, I think it is important to try to figure out what are the most therapeutic aspects of, of the psychedelic um, treatment. And because we don't want to throw something out that's really important. We don't want to delegitimize something that we don't understand. Um, and, and you don't want to um, not give people the opportunity of of a therapy because there might be something expensive and cumbersome. And so I, I, that's a great discussion. And I think the article is.
Tim, I mean, have you pitched iShaman to Apple yet? Or did they pitch that to you? <laughs> or, when, can or, I, when can I get I'm waiting, it? I'm waiting for Apple to come when to can me. I get it? When, when <laughs> can I download the app, though? I think it would, be, it would be better for like Oculus Rift, where you take the ayahuasca <laughs> and then you put on the headset. Oh, yeah. Right, but Tim, <laughs> before we move on to Jimson Weed, uh, do you want to respond to Sarah's? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, just Sarah, your point actually reminded me of something. And, and there's a, a researcher, Ed Seller, um, and I think he's based out of Canada, who's, who's had, you know, he's been a bit, he was a bit of a skeptic. He, he's still a, a psychedelic evangelist, but kind of came in very skeptical. But to your point, that is a big question, too, of, of during these trials. If, if you're in a room with two clinicians in a very loving, caring environment, it's like no crap that's going to have a therapeutic effect. And so there, there is this difficulty of, of isolating variables as well. Is it that, is it, you know, just the drug? Is it a combination of the two? And that's another complicating factor with, with ayahuasca and where we've, you know, there's been discussion of pharmawaska and, and things like that. The, the, the players I've seen really emerge so far have been just pure DMT, you know, companies focused purely on DMT, whether it's via infusion or potentially a deuterated version where, you know, it can be a slower absorption and kind of a longer trip to mimic ayahuasca, but it's so tough with ayahuasca. Just every brew is, is different. And that was a question I had of, of almost feel like a, a follow-up point on this article is could you almost, I mean, it would be subjective, but could you start surveying people from different retreat centers, you know, with different brew, you know, different concoctions and getting a sense of, you know, are more ther- therapeutic outcomes, you know, associated with one versus the other, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a difficulty with, with Iowa, you know, commercializing ayahuasca and, and taking it through clinical trials. There's just so many already with psychedelics, there's so many variables at play. Then you add on, you know, multiple vines, you have harmaline in there, DMT, a lot of different things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a complicated one. So I think that's a great place to transition to our next article. Cause what I was hearing from you, Tim, is there are some shared experiences with ayahuasca. And then there are things that some people experience that seem like one off that no one else has experienced. And mm-hmm. This Jimson Weed article is uh, from the plainfieldgardenclub.org, a non-peer-reviewed source. <laughs> but one thing that really fascinates me about psychedelics is when people have similar or shared experiences. So not saying they're having it at the same time, but they both take, take a drug at different points in their life. And they're like, yes, I've visited the alien cities too. Or like, yes, uh, I met those gnomes. They talked to me too. Um, you, you see these types of things. And so Jimson Weed is... is uh, scientifically known as Datura stramonium, and it has a lot of common names. You know, Jimson weed, ditch weed, stink weed, loco weed, Korean mooring glory, Jamestown weed, you know, angel's trumpet, devil's trumpet, devil's snare, devil's weed, mad hatter, crazy tea, and my personal favorite, zombie cucumber. Um, but it's, it's, it's a common weed in the nightshade family, and it contains things like atropine and scopolamine. Now, Jim, you know, these types of things are somehow both Schedule One drugs and FDA-approved drugs at kind of the same time, um, which is very interesting. But there are a lot of concerns over risks of overdoses and hospitalizations and even some deaths reported from recreational use because this is something that grows like by the train tracks. So, you know, it's, it's, it's readily available. It's, it's in your common Webster's Dictionary if you want to uh, identify it. Um, but what really struck me was something I had never encountered before was these anecdotal reports that mentions a user's perception of phantom cigarettes. So in cigarette smokers and non-cigarette smokers, 
the person believes that he or she is smoking a cigarette only to find that it has disappeared and never existed. Um, and there's also interactions of users interacting with unreal objects, which is looking down and seeing a cigarette lighter in one's hand and then dropping it and then realizing after a minute or two of searching that the user never had a cigarette lighter. So, you know, I found this, you know, kind of really fascinating, sort of returning to reality from detour induced hallucinations, um, you know, coupled with momentary disorientation. Um, and I'm going to throw this open, you know, Nigam, I don't know if you responded first to an article yet, but, you know, what are your thoughts on this sort of phantom cigarette experience uh, with Jimson Weed? Yeah, so one thing I thought was uh, a good delineation here was that they were talking about this is, these are, you know, true hallucinations, not an alteration to the reality, but things that just aren't there existing. So one thing that I also, so that stood out. And then I also couldn't help but think it's interesting about this psychedelics thing. You know, the psychedelics movement is not new. The, you know, everyone trying to get into the FDA pipeline with their single molecule psychedelic solution for a specific you know, condition to get approved and get into the, the doctor's office and all this, that is a little bit not new. You know, we look at the model, right, of cannabis spreading across, you know, the nation and the world. And where did it start? It started with, oh, let's get this approved for a medical purpose. Now, granted, it didn't go through the FDA pipeline, but anyways, in this kind of current context with that history and then this current thing happening, it's interesting to to read this and it's a reminder of how many psychoactive substances there are out there, how many of them are less well understood. And then in this context of the, you know, you must have a medical, a specific medical outcome to be in kind of this psychedelic space these days. I wonder what is this for? Is there a therapeutic, reason for you know a uh a true hallucination or is this something that will remain on the fringes is it something that will remain on the fringes until later when someone finds a you know fda approved purpose for having a hallucination i don't know so some some little bit some out there thoughts but it's what came to mind absolutely and you know i've got to wonder if i think about because people are moving down the line of the psychedelic plant list and developing those products. If the FDA would ever approve a product and we'll see that late night commercial, like, do you have depression? Take this side effects include smoking phantom cigarettes. You know, is that, you know, is that like a turnoff maybe for people developing the drugs is having these sort of shared anecdotes of side effects and, and maybe Tim, you know, what would be some of your thoughts on this? Like if people were coming to you and they're developing say a Datura, based yeah therapy and they're like it's going great but there's this side effect where people keep thinking they have a lighter in their hand and they don't um yeah well maybe everything i've heard about the tour i'm biased by by that you know i just like why someone would i mean you know i've got my psychedelic bucket list but why that would be on someone's list and i was on a, a 
uh, a group chat a long time ago and someone someone had mentioned it of you know hey does anyone have the, the access and i was like what like of all the you know all the things so um, it's not a it's not a priority you think for commercialization and, and medical development definitely not well yeah that's kind of my being facetious you know from a putting my vc at investor cap on i mean i think my bigger question with something like a Datura versus psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, you know, drugs where we, we just have a lot more data around them. There's just, there's not, you know, there's anecdotal evidence. I don't know nearly as much research around Datura, you know, same I've, I've heard for Selvia where it's just a lot more speculative as an investor. I mean, part of why I like, you know, traditional psychedelics, albeit there's a lot of crowding in the spaces. I just think the odds of approve of FDA approval are a lot higher um, versus others, it's just it's a bit more of a gamble as an investor. And so, you know, I, I in biotech, you like certainty, right, in the pipeline. Um, so with, you know, with something, if it was, if there was a play around a tour, I'd be open-minded, but I would, I'd want the valuation to reflect that without a doubt and probably have that priced in. Um, I'm going to, I'd have a much steeper discount because I have no, I, maybe you can get this thing approved, but um, I, I have no idea. So that's always my bigger question on kind of these more esoteric um, I guess you can classify Detour in the psychedelic camp, but um, but with that said, I will say you can't always ignore the anecdote either, right? I mean, people have talked about combining Xanax with psilocybin for a very long time to mitigate bad trip symptoms, and Eleusis has really latched onto this, and they've got a pretty novel, pretty um, breakthrough therapy, you know, which is a fixed dose combination of psilocybin combined with a benzodiazepine and an antiemetic to really mitigate those bad trip symptoms. So, um, and a lot of that was based on, you know, anecdote. I, I'm sure there might be some research out there and, and I don't know what the prior art is around that, but um, you can't totally ignore that. So maybe people found therapeutic effects from Datura. That'll be my last point. I haven't talked to a ton of people who are like, yeah, I really want to do that. Or I really want to do that again. So um, definitely would be skeptical of it, but yeah. As I'm, I, I was just going to say, as I'm listening to, uh, Tim talk about the nuance of investing in Datura. I'm thinking, you know, we see things for um, addiction treatment or cessation from like smoking, for instance. Here's the question, Jehan. Do you think, or for Tim, do you think we can create a uh, smoking cessation where you can just imagine, you can, you can smoke your cigarette in a hallucination instead of in real life? Mm, very, very interesting. I think Sarah's probably the best one to maybe answer that. I mean, addiction's your, your field of study and, and the combination of different substances. So, you know, would that pantomimic behavior, that psychomimetic behavior, potentially be therapeutic for someone trying to quit cigarettes or quit a smoking behavior? Maybe it's they're smoking other stuff like cannabis or just that sort of built-in thing. Yeah, I, I found that part of the article absolutely fascinating, as you did too, Jehan, especially the part about even people who don't smoke cigarettes hallucinated smoking cigarettes. So, you know, as a basic scientist, my first question is, why? Like, how? Like, you know, so I do think... Um, you know, the, the effects of these compounds, maybe not from a therapeutic perspective as exciting, but just learning more about basic pharmacology and how 
the brain works. You know, as you mentioned, these some of these drugs are FDA approved, right? So many of us might have taken scopolamine if we were going on a cruise or we have motion sickness. Some of these cholinergics are used in surgery. So there are specific medical applications of them. Um, why does a drug that works on the cholinergic system produce hallucinations and why would it be things specific to smoking. So, you know, as a research tool, I think it has merit. That's fascinating. Um, and certainly, you know, one of the biggest challenges to smoking cessation, it's like, well, why doesn't Nicorette work better? Because there's such a strong behavioral component, especially to smoking. People are sometimes as addicted to that process as the, you know, why can't I just throw some nicotine on my cholinergic receptors and, you know, be done with it. Um, and again, it, it's fascinating that if so many of these components of Jimson weed activate cholinergic receptors, how does the brain know that <laughs> it seems and that experience that cholinergic pharmacological experience ties into a hallucination about smoking. So yeah, I think, you know, I wouldn't go, you know, invest my paycheck in, you know, Datura, but again, for, you know, taking clues from these anecdotal stories as, as we, you know, we'll talk about with so many of these things can really drive some really exciting science. So I think that's cool. The other, best part of the article was the mnemonic provided um, for these cholinergic compounds. You're teaching pharmacology classes when we lecture about atropine and the um, autonomic nervous system, we use this boring, you know, blind as a bat, mad as a hat or blah, blah, blah. Um, but the, the fantastic can't see, can't spit, can't pee, can't <laughs> gave me a good chuckle as a friend <laughs> has much more fun to put up there on a slide for students and it definitely increased their grade and ability to remember uh sympathetic nervous system activation <laughs> yeah I, I would say so i mean it seems like a really unique substance and and most people probably are only familiar with it through you know underground use and you know, I, I want to transfer to our to our next story um, about Denver's secret LSD labs, which fueled the psychedelic revolution. Now, every now and then, we have to talk about a story to keep it real. And I want to thank Del Potter for, for sending us this article from Westward, westward.com. So, you know, 50 years ago or so, the summer of love, right? Everyone on acid. Um, having a great time, making love, listening to music. But, you know, now that we're coming of age, we should just say no. Um, but anyway, but it's a little known fact that like there were, Denver has, was home to two of the major LSD laboratories. They were short-lived, but they, you know, created grams and grams and grams of pure crystalline LSD. Um, and, and this was not just for the operators, but for the psychedelic community as well. And we're running a little short on time with this uh, segment. So I just want to go around and just start with uh, maybe you, Tim. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you've read the article. Um, was there something here that, that surprised you about the role that these laboratories played, about the people who were involved? 
um, sh- share your impression yeah. from this article. Yeah, I first off, I mean, kudos to Dell. I, it was just a fascinating read, just as is a story. I, I I really enjoyed it. This was probably one of my more favorite ones to to go through. Just kind of a a, a narrative structure to it and everything. Um, my, you know. Uh, these are a few just kind of scattered thoughts is, you know, there's always, well, first off, I think the realization that these guys, Tim Scully, you know, some of the other, the cast of characters here, I mean, they genuinely thought they were doing a good thing, you know, whether it manifested that way. And I know some things appeared to get out of hand, you know, we always lose sight of that. I think that these aren't, you know, chemists with just pure profit motive, trying to drug people up and, and get people hooked. They literally, you know, they really thought, psychedelics would save the world. And I, I, and I do still have a little bit of that kind of bright eyed, bushy tailed optimism personally, but um, you know, I think we lose sight of that. Conversely, I always have this question of the detectives that like Lorita and gray who went after them and, you know, you know, ex, you know, DEA enforcers. And, and you just hear these stories of busting down doors and I'm, you know, psychedelics definitely try to teach you a lot of empathy but I can't help but get a little angry still of like, really got, you know, yeah. like, you know, just like the, the draconian nature and how they do it and following. I mean, it's almost like borderline creepy, you know, like the, the, the. Yeah. They talk you- about the federal agents and how they were really easy to identify because they'd be in like the same type of car with one guy driving and another guy on a walkie talkie following yeah, exactly. them around. And they're like, okay, well, they're just so to out to get them. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just so obsessively out to get them and people who, you know, I think genuinely thought they were doing good, but you know, at the same time I get, you know, these DEA enforcers and detectives, et cetera. I mean, they, they thought they were doing good as well. So I always have this internal struggle of, of should I be angry? You know, should I not? Um, and then I think the last question, this is more of a topic of open debate is did this get a little too not to, I know Timothy Leary always become probably unfairly the boogeyman of, of psychedelics, but did this become Leary-esque in a way of it just went a little too overboard? I mean, I do think, you know, having children drink Kool-Aid or, or things like that probably took it a bit too far. Mm-hmm. And did that do some things to set back the movement? I would say I lean towards, I still think people like this who really held the torch, I do think it was a net positive. And it's always, we try to put things in a black and black or white camp and, and don't get me wrong. There's frills that came along with it, but I think, you know, holding the torch and, and keeping this alive, I do think we owe people like this a debt of gratitude who did go to jail for a number of years, really had their reputations tarnished for decades. And, you know, now psychedelics is cool. It's really easy for me to, to come into this as a VC investor poking around three to four years ago. It was really, it was, I would say it was pretty difficult I can't even imagine, you know, during the the Nancy Reagan and Reagan era and even pre that when these were really getting pushed underground under under Nixon, I can't imagine, you know, being the the contrarian who's saying no, there's something here and really, you know, willing to risk your your livelihood over that. So, uh, you know, a huge debt of gratitude owed to guys like Tim Scully and and others, but um yeah, those are kind of my scattered tangential thoughts around the article. It was a great piece. Fantastic. And, you know, Nigam, you have a chemistry background. You've worked in, you know, formulation, synthesis stuff. I wanted to kind of get your reaction. You know, when they were, they talked about how when they were synthesizing this, it was very difficult. You had to take extreme measures not to dose yourself because it would be on the air, it would be in your clothes, it would be in your skin. And so eventually working with it, you would get, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 you know, a little queasy from exposure. Um, yeah, I just want to kind of get your reaction to some parts of this as a chemist. Somehow um, working with this. 
Yeah, somehow you you know me too well because that's literally the exact quote I pulled from this article. So I'm I'm just going to read this and and I think it's nice so for the listeners. So this is a quote. It says, "Once you started making acid, unless you take extraordinary measures, which we never did, then you're going to get high. It tends to get in the air." and on your clothes. But what happens is that you rapidly build up a tolerance. So you're not hallucinating violently. You're not even aware that you're in an altered state unless you talk to someone who's not in the lab. But there was definitely an electric feeling. Nice. I, that is, that's a beautiful pull quote from that article. Um, I, I could talk more about the, the OSHA violations going on in a facility like that. But I wanted to get Sarah's just kind of response to this because, you know, Sarah, you're, you know, in the cannabis space, you're straddling an interesting world in academia and the industry. And, you know, the industry was underground for a long time. So you must see some, some parallels here. But I just wanted to get your sort of response to the role these underground labs played. Um, did they set back research by decades or did they really spur interest in these? And so... Anyway, feel free to comment on whatever you like as we wrap up this segment. Yeah, I think both. And, you know, as I've mentioned before on the show, uh, you know, there are so many interesting parallels for me with cannabis and the psychedelics. And, you know, what Tim pointed out, I think, is extraordinarily important to remind ourselves that there are people doing things for good and bad and sort of, you know, gray reasons on both sides. And, you know, as I, you know, got educated over the last decade or more with cannabis, that was such an important factor for me was understanding where different people were coming from and how the stigma has tied into the progress that has and hasn't been made in the cannabis field. And it's the same for psychedelics and, and re-experiencing this with learning about psychedelics in the past six months with, with you guys, I get to, I get to experience it myself. You know, as I told you, it's like, now I'm very comfortable talking about medical cannabis, but it's like, LSD, <gasps> you know, and like all of the stigma, you know, I grew up with Nancy Reagan and, and, you know, hearing my, you know, hearing people talk about acid and how, you know, terrible all of these things are. When I read this article, I got the squirm factor, like looking at those pictures and this was, I didn't want to read this article. And then it's like, well, why, why don't I want to read this article? You know, because I still have more of that part come up in me. Um, and so I think, you know, the best thing about things like this article and these discussions is to highlight what were the pros? What did we learn scientifically? And, you know, all of the advancements that are now being made with psychedelics as, you know, therapeutics for psychiatric diseases is awesome. But what are the dangers? Why was there a stigma? And, you know, what, what cautions do we need to pay attention to? And, and what do we need to fight back on as utter BS? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think, um, the best thing that we can do is keep talking through these things, especially these really nuanced 
um, areas where, you know, as Tim was pointing out, there were there were reasons why, um, you know, you needed to be paying attention on what these people were doing and, you know, make sure that things were safe. And so, yeah, I, w- I would say um, that, you know, things happened the way they happened and they both at the same time moved science forward and slowed it down. And so all we can do, the best thing we can do is educate ourselves on both of those sides to, to do things the best we can moving forward. Fantastic discussion for our, our news and popular literature section. So we're going to take a short break and come back with some rapid fire science and then close out with our game. Hello, I'm Chris Witowski, the co-founder and CEO of Solera Bioscience. If you'd like to learn more about how we're bringing a new era in mindful medicine, please visit solera.com, that's P-S-I-L-E-R-A, or email us at info at solera.com. Thank you. All right. Welcome back, listener. It's time for Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and maybe a little discussion about peer-reviewed articles. Um, So our first article by Castles is entitled Dark Classics in Chemical Neuroscience Mescaline, published by ACS Chemical Neuroscience. Now, uh, most of us know mescaline as being found in cacti. Um, You know, it's been around for a while, but Sarah... Give us a, a little bit of some of the gee whiz facts you found in this um, neuroscience article that, that reviews mescaline. Yeah, you know, I, I thought this was interesting. One of the things that I, I didn't know as much about was the relative potency of different hallucinogenics. So I thought it was interesting that it was stated that this is sort of one of the less favored recreational psychedelics because it has relatively lower potency for the serotonin receptors than other psychedelics. Um, So, you know, which then I get excited, well, does that give us a bigger bigger therapeutic window? If if people do find some therapeutic application of mescaline, might it be associated with fewer adverse effects? Um, Also, you know, again, just going back to this serotonin interaction, um, you know, from a from a research point of view, this is very interesting. Serotonin is, you know, so massively abundant in the human body, not just the brain, but uh, throughout the body. I mean, it really runs our digestive system and our enteric nervous system. Um, so, you know, trying to understand more about what properties these psychedelics have of interacting with the serotonin system might provide uh, therapeutic benefit. But also um, to not maybe get too bogged down with that to try, you know, that, so this brings me back to that um, default mode network article that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Um, If we, are we focusing too much, not we, but folks like me, pharmacologists, focusing too much on, oh, here's a neurotransmitter and a receptor that I've heard of before and forget to look beyond that to maybe some of the broader 
uh, effects that these psychedelics uh, may have in common. So yeah, I, you know, I thought that the article was was really interesting in highlighting just one more psychedelic that people are interested for its potential uh, therapeutic benefits and having this um, serotonin um, tie into it. I thought it was very cool. Very cool. And, you know, I was very shocked to learn that, you know, the, the use of this is outstandingly long, like 6,000 years ago, um, folks were using this. And even in the U.S., there's a bit of a history in the 1800s of isolating the effects. They were actually dosing people and studying it. And perhaps my favorite is the, the reference to the Texas Rangers who would soak peyote buttons, uh, like in whiskey and other stuff, and then drink it. I mean, that's a shot. Let me tell you. Holy cow. Um, uh, and, you know, Tim, I want to just get your feedback uh, real quick on this um, dark classic in chemical neuroscience, this, this review article on mescaline. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mescaline's always interested me in, in that, you know, I, it was one of the first psychedelics synthesized, right? That's what Arthur Hefter synthesized, if I'm not mistaken, in the late 1800s. And, and then you have... Um, you know, Aldous Huxley using it, yet it seems like an orphan child in kind of, uh, you know, at least modern modern discussions around psychedelics, which I, I've always, you know, my question as an investor, going back to the, 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 the tour discussion, maybe that's too far off the beaten path, but, you know, there is always this question of are there um, compounds that people aren't paying enough attention to that really could have therapeutic benefits. The, the commentary, I think where I can really add value is what I've seen from, you know, on the commercial landscape. What's interesting is Sarah's comments about this being a little less potent, a little less psychoactive than, than maybe some of the, the other compounds. Eleusis is actually working on, you know, they're, they're very interested in the anti-inflammatory properties of psychedelics, which also fascinates me of kind of some of the non-psychoactive therapeutic elements to, to psychedelics. So there's this question of, can you get that same, you know, the same anti-inflammatory benefits from a psychedelic minus the psychoactivity and reduce the psychoactivity. And so what they're working on is actually a mescaline analog. Um, so it's, it's related to, you know, the, the mescaline um, compound. So, which I just, I, I find interesting, this kind of has emerged as a good candidate potentially for that. If you can get some very potent anti-inflammatory effects and very minimal psychoactivity, at least at the dosing, they're looking at. On the psychoactive front, the only other commentary I, I can give is, you know, there's this company Journey Collab or Journey Collaboration, um, which came out. That was kind of one of those moonshot bets. I know, um, I think it was the the one of the Sam Altman out of Y Combinator um, funded them. And, you know, that's it's interesting. I think they're working on mescaline potentially for substance abuse disorder, which will be interesting to see what, you know, Sarah, maybe you have, you can comment on that real quick after, after this of, of if you see any potential there, you know, I mentioned it to a few people within psychedelic research and, and their attitude was kind of God bless, you know, maybe, but they were a little more skeptical of mescaline for substance abuse in particular. So I, I don't know. It was interesting that that was the indication they chose. Um, but nonetheless, and, and, you know, an interesting bet, I haven't seen a lot of people working on mescaline. So hats off to, to the journey folks that I think they're picking up the torch on something that, hasn't been explored a lot. And I'm, I'm hoping, you know, there probably will be other companies emerge around this, you know, down the road. Excellent points. Um, you know, we are running out of time for this trip. And so in the interest of time, we're going to save our next article. We're going to move 
into the game in a second, but we'll still post okay. the article in the show notes for the listener and we'll bring it back. But how does ayahuasca work from a psychiatric perspective? Pros and cons of the ethanogenic therapy published in human psychopharmacology. Um, check it out if you have a chance. We will bring this article back for discussion, but we'll take a very short break and come back with today's game. At Marku and Aurora, we understand that finding the right source for cannabis education can be a real challenge. But imagine this. You name the university-level graduate school course you want to take, and we'll design and teach it to you, specifically suited for your needs. Fill out the contact form at marku-aurora.com, that's M-A-R-C-U-A-R-O-R-A.com, to tell us what you would like to learn about. All right, welcome back. And for today's game, we'll be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. Uh, the theme of today's game is to guess the phony drug tabloid or drug headline. So three are made up and one is real. And so I'm going to read these headlines and then I'm going to go around and see what our participants think. So our first headline, headline A, zookeeper arrested for dosing penguins with LSD. Is it B, Florida sheriff finds crack between buttocks? Is it C, Jay-Z's cannabis brand monogram launches with $50 hand-rolled joints? Or is it D, psilocybin is the next big thing in functional foods industry? So uh, I'll read these again, but I guess I'm going to go to, to Nigam first. And these are again, is it A, zookeeper arrested for dosing penguins with LSD? Is it B, Florida sheriff finds crack between buttocks? Is it Z, Jay-Z's cannabis brand monogram launches with $50 hand-rolled joints? Or is it D, psilocybin is the next big thing in functional foods industry? So I'm, I'm unfortunately going to have to recuse myself from this game because I'm highly aware of the answer and I'm kind of upset about it. So I'm going to pass it to the other podcast members to see. If, <laughs> All right. I don't know if they're uh, as highly aware as me, but... Well, uh, Sarah, do you, are you ready to, to run through these real quick? Yes. All right. So what are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, although I don't follow Jay-Z, I think that maybe if Jay-Z had a cannabis company that most people would already know about it. So I'm going to guess that that one is false because I think that that would be too easy. Um, Florida man crack and buttocks. That sounds so much like a Jehan joke that <laughs> I'm going to say that, that one is false. Um, so I'm between zookeepers giving penguins LSD and psilocybin and functional foods. Um, my guess is Tim's going to know whether or not the psilocybin functional food story is true or not. So I'm going to, I'm going to hand off to Tim and see what right. his thoughts are, <laughs> but right. I'm leaning toward the true one, either being penguins on LSD or the last psilocybin. Interesting. 
Interesting. Throw the VC guy under the bus here. Yeah, bring, bring us home. <laughs> bring us so home here, here's my thought process. I know knowing Jahan and Nigam, I, I feel like we're gonna get thrown for a loop here. I want here's what I wanna say. I wanna say that it's D, but but Nigam gave a clue that he's disappointed. And I feel like if there's anything I've gotten out of 2020, it's disappointment in humanity in general. And even maybe the past four years, not to get super political, but it's, it's been <laughs> general disappointment. So I feel like for some reason it is B and that pains me that like, that's such a like Florida panhandle thing that like, that would happen that it's, it's gotta be something absurd is actually the real one even. So I want it to be D I'm going to go with B just cause I, I don't know, like it's 2020, I, you know, I've seen yeah. crazier things happen. So, so it, what I'm hearing is that uh, it's a toss up right now. I mean, yeah. Right. So y'all are I'll go A. <laughs> all right. So Sarah is thinking the zookeeper arrested for dosing penguins with LSD is the real headline. And uh, Tim, you're going with B. I'll facetiously go with, go with B just that right. you guys are trying to throw us for a loop here, even though no, no, honestly, I have no idea on this one. Okay. It's yeah. Tough to tell. Well, it's, it's good thinking. So now it's time for the big reveal. So um, let's start with, with D for those of you who thought um, that psilocybin is the next big thing in the fun functional foods industry. You thought this was maybe too good to be true for a headline. Well, that's because uh, it is, it is too good to be true. So, that was uh, a little bit of a doctored headline from something I read about functional foods, and I just threw in psilocybin in it. So it, sa uh, it didn't sound that bad, though. It really didn't, didn't sound that bad. So I was that excited about it. I was like, "Yeah, cool." That <laughs> one is is made up. So now let's go on to uh, B. Florida sheriff finds crack between bugs. So you know, this might sound like a little strange story and like a joke I would make up. But that's because it is. So this was okay. one I right. just I just I, I took a pun and added. My Florida. faith in humanity has been somewhat restored. So your faith in Jehan has not been restored. <laughs> <laughs> and my faith in or <laughs> <More> confirmed. <laughs> bring me a, bring me on the next podcast. We could do a whole psychoanalysis session with Jehan. It's a <laughs> <laughs> so that leaves right. it's either a zookeepers arrested for dosing penguins with LSD or C Jay-Z's cannabis brand with $50 hand rolled joints. And the real headline comes out of Forbes and that is Jay-Z's cannabis brand monogram launches with $50 hand rolled joints, which means <laughs> that there is no evidence that zookeepers have been dosing penguins with LSD <laughs> as much as I'd like that to be true, uh, just penguins are one of my favorite animals, and I was just trying to think how to connect it uh, to the show. <laughs> but <laughs> I was going to say, like you know, we have we have like you know rat-based models, and how do you pronounce dr Drosophila, yeah. like, things yeah. like that. Penguins could be a new animal behavioral model. You never know. I don't know. It's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they do like to group together and stare at those northern lights. So I think <laughs> might be might be something there. Exactly. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much to our guests today. And, and that's our show, listeners. So thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. If you enjoyed the episode cover artwork, check out Selena Lee. Learn more at selenaartdesign.com. And a very special thank you to our trusty audio engineer. This show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. All right. Thanks for listening. 